a good cause. Okay, um, enough of that. You ready to get going? You can open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22, and uh, we're going to get started here in a second. Uh, the truth of the matter is we all do face problems in our lives, amen, from time to time. And I don't know where you're at today. Uh, maybe you're facing a big one right now. Maybe the trial and the difficulty that you're facing has a name. Uh, maybe it has a face. Maybe there's a particular individual or some individuals that are just out to get you. Ever have that happen to you? I have. Um, it happens from time to time. And when that happens, you know, life's not fun. In fact, it can be, it can be quite daunting. Well, let me just ask you a question. Wouldn't it be cool if while you're going through a situation like that or you've been suffering a situation similar to that, whatever your circumstances, and I don't mean to belittle anybody's, everybody goes through what they go through, it's tough for you at that time. Wouldn't it be cool if you could see that thing flipped and God turn it into a blessing? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if you could take that tough time and all of a sudden you flip it around and man, God is just pouring out abundant grace? Of course that's what you'd want. Well, if that interests you praise the lord you're in the right place today that's what we're going to talk about in the life of israel we are approaching the end of the stories of the book of numbers a study that we've been going through for several months now and and we're going to be looking into one particular storyline that is actually the longest single storyline in the entire book uh, it's a very well-known story to those of you that have been in church any length of time and have read through the bible and it's likely a very misunderstood story. And so we're going to take some time and go through that. In fact, this story is so long and so important and actually so misunderstood, we can't possibly cover it all today. So we're going to get into it next week as well and potentially even the week after that. So please come back again next week. And uh, we'll continue to look at this story. The story that we're going to be looking at is the story of a man named Balaam. And Balaam is a prophet. Uh, you might ask yourself if you've heard of Balaam, if you've read the story of Balaam, was Balaam a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Uh, if, if you've been in kids' Sunday school class, probably you've heard the story of Balaam had a conversation with a donkey that he was riding on and how weird that story is. Uh, we're actually not going to get to that part of it today, so you'll have to come back next week for that part of it. Um, but today, what I want to do for you is take a look at the big picture. Uh, this story actually spans three full chapters, Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And you need to have the big picture understanding of this story. It's actually really important so that you can then appreciate the details as we look at them one by one. In fact, the idea of understanding the big picture and anything biblical is so important. It's really one of the main reasons why we go to such great lengths to offer to you discipleship. So you have personal discipleship that will take you through many of the core doctrines of the faith. And then when you're done with personal discipleship, we offer to you the next level called ministry tools and training, which ministry tools and training will then take all of that understanding and put it in a picture so that you can get the big picture of how your entire Bible is put together. And so I so love being a part of Ministry Tools and Training because so often, every semester, the students come through and they're like, ah, now I get it. Now I know, I knew a lot about the Bible. Now I know how it all fits together. 
Well, that idea is what I want to give to you on the front end today, and we'll dive into some of the details and such next week as well. But we've got plenty to see. What I want you to see today is this, and this is in your notes. You need to learn to ask the question, what is God doing? That's generally a very good question for you to get in the habit of asking regularly as you're going through things in your life. We're very proficient at asking, what are people doing? Did you see what he did? Did you see what she did? Did you see this one and that one? And with social media today, everybody's up on everybody else's business anyway. And a lot of it's your own fault because you put it out there. But the fact of the matter is, everybody's interested in what everybody else is doing. Or you may think, well, what am I doing about it? Okay, well, that's a valid question at times also. But have you ever really stopped to just ask the question, what is God doing? Is God doing something in the midst of these circumstances I'm going through? What is it that he's trying to teach me? What is it that he's doing in the world? So in this particular story, up to this point in the book of Numbers, and if you've been with us through the study, you've heard over and over and over again about the difficulties and the challenges and the trials coming through the wilderness Life's not been easy for Israel, but it's all about to change. Because in general, their life, and as we will make personal application in specific to this story, God is going to, as I've titled this message, turn a curse into a blessing. He's going to turn a curse into a blessing. I'm not going to read ahead of time because we've got three full chapters of material, nor am I ever going to read all of those three chapters to you today. Uh, thankfully, you know how to read, but we'll pick and choose se several places as we describe the narrative going through. Before we do that, let's just take a minute, let's pray. Let's ask God to speak to our hearts, and then we'll jump into our outline. So, Lord Jesus, we come before you, thankfully, as always, that you have given to us your perfectly preserved holy word. You've given us the story that's an accurate historical account of the children of Israel and Balaam and King Balak of Moab and all of these things that are going on such that we could actually learn something today and that's what our desire would be. That's what our prayer is today, that you would help us to see what you are doing in the life of the nation of Israel and help us to learn how to see what you are doing in our lives as we go through similar circumstances. And, and while we're going through it, Lord, would you just continue to teach us to rest in you, not to panic, not to worry about what everybody else is doing, and maybe not even worry about what we're doing so much as to get a grasp of what exactly it is you're doing. And Lord, for those of us that are going through times that seems like a curse, if we could just learn how to let you turn that thing into a blessing. We'll continue to give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory because you deserve it. You're the only one that can do that. So speak, teach us, and give us the courage to respond as you would see fit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, our first point that we're going to look at, I'm calling Israel's progress. We're actually going to go backwards into Numbers chapter 21 a little bit, and we're going to get a running start coming into this. So actually, we're going to cover material out of four different chapters today. Uh, don't worry, I have timed this message. We'll get done in time. But back in Numbers, actually, if you look back in Numbers chapter 20 and verse number 28, we have the story of Aaron, who Moses' older brother, finally dies. Okay, and, and he dies, and, and God says, you're going to go up on this mountain, you're going to die, and they go up on this mountain, and he dies. And that's at the very end of Numbers chapter 20 
And then we go into Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, immediately we see after this event that Aaron is called home with the Lord, that Israel starts moving. I mean, they've been camping a lot and sitting around a lot and going around in circles a lot. But, but as of Numbers chapter 21, Israel is on the move. I'm going to read various verses as we come through it, starting in verse number 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. There's a lot of walking, a lot of traveling going on right there. We're going to jump down to verse number 10. And the children of Israel set forth and pitched in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and pitched in Ijeabarim in the wilderness, which is before Moab, toward the sun rising. From thence they removed and pitched in the valley of Zared. And from thence they removed and pitched on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that cometh out of the coast of the Amorites. For Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. God had such victory in the Red Sea and in Arnon they were comparable one to another. And in the stream of the brooks that goeth down unto the dwelling of Ar and lieth upon the border of Moab. Let's jump down to verse number 21 and keep reading. Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn into the fields or into the vineyards. We'll not drink of the waters of the well, but we'll go along by the king's highway until we pass thy borders. And Sihon would not suffer Israel to pass through his border, but Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel into the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon. For the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon, and in all the villages thereof. We'll continue down. Verse number 31. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took the villages thereof and drove out the Amorites that were there. And they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to the battle at Enrei. And the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thine hand, and all his people in his land. And thou shalt do to him as thou didst the Sihon king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So they smote him and his sons and all his people until they were left none alive, and they possessed his land. This narrative at the end of chapter 1 is very different than the narrative we've been studying coming up to this point, isn't it? They are on the move. I mean, as they say, they are taking names and they are, you know, doing you know what. They're winning the battles. Let's leave it at that. And God is moving them, and, and they're, they are moving and, and what I want you to get as we kind of get into this idea is that there is kind of an overall timeline. So if you go back and you look at the times that are described in the Old Testament, we're not going to do all of this. It took about two years from the time Israel crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness, went down to Sinai, got the Ten Commandments and the law, and then made it up to Kadesh Barnea, that border land on the south that we saw in Numbers 13 where the spies went into the land. That journey from the Red Sea to get to Kadesh Barnea took two years. It took two years. And then, interestingly, because of the unbelief of the spies and because the people feared and the bad report of the ten spies, they end up having to wander around in the wilderness 38 more years until everybody that was 20 years old and older at that time would die off in the wilderness. And this was the punishment for their unbelief. So they go and they wander around for all this time. Now, there should be a map that we have here. 
And uh, if you can kind of see this map, so let me show you. Right up in this area is where they would cross the Red Sea. And then they came down here until Sinai, where they would have got the Ten Commandments. And they made it all the way right there as Kadesh Barnea. You may not be able to see it, but that's kind of the, the place right there. And, you know, the spies go into the land and they came back. Well, after that time, two years to get there, the next 38 years, they kind of just wandered around in circles. They just kind of wandered exactly where they wandered. We don't really know, but they just kind of, you know, wasting time for a whole generation because of their unbelief. And then we find out that eventually they go back to Kadesh Barnea. When they go back to Kadesh Barnea, what they find that that's about the spot where Aaron died. Aaron died at a place called Mount Hor. So that dot is Kadesh, and that little triangle right there is Mount Hor. So Mount Hor is near Kadesh Barnea. And all the traveling that I just read to you was the traveling of them then going from this point down here, up here, looped around, looped around, and they're right there poised to, about to, to be about ready to enter into the promised land. That's where we pick up this story. Why do I say all that? We're still just building a case. Israel's making progress. I want you to notice Numbers chapter 33 and verse 38. Numbers 33 gives a tally of the entire travelings of everywhere Israel went. If you're kind of nerdy and into that kind of stuff, read Numbers 33. We won't study that chapter in detail. But in Numbers 33, 38, it says, And Aaron the priest went up into Mount Hor at the commandment of the Lord and died there when, notice, in the 40th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the first day of the fifth month. You have a marker exactly when it was that Aaron died. They'd already been in the wilderness 40 years, fifth month, first day. Compare Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse number 3. And it came to pass in the 40th year in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according to all the Lord had given him a commandment unto them. So just before they're about to cross over into the promised land, all that traveling, that went, give that map back again, all that traveling that went from Mount Hor, can we come backwards? There we go, all right. All this, boom, down here. So two years to get there the first time, 38 more circling around, about six months they did all that traveling. In other words, when the Lord says it's time to move, you can make some progress. You can flat make some progress. It only took six months to be positioned to where they could enter into the promised land. And that's where they're at, at the borders of Moab, where we pick up this story of Balaam. In other words, what I want you to understand is this. This is in your notes. The trials are finally over. The trials for Israel are finally over. The trials of the wilderness, the trials of personal growth, amen, which should be an encouragement to all of us because that means that there can come a time when those kinds of trials necessary to grow you up will cease. Not that you'll never have trials, but the idea is, is that these things necessary to bring you to a point of spiritual maturity, to bring you to the point where you can feed yourself and God doesn't have to hand feed you manna every morning supernaturally. I mean, that day can come. And that day has come for Israel. They're on the move. They're making progress every single day. At, think about it. If you were with them after years, decades of just wandering around in circles, seeing the same old cactus and rocks and sand and whatever over and over again. They're finally traveling some new land. They're finally seeing some new sites. They finally had a good feeling. I mean, think about it. Finally, 
after all this time, we're making progress. We're moving forward. And I want you to realize that all of the movements of the nation of Israel were guided by that pillar of cloud by the day and that pillar of fire at night. In other words, it is God himself that is clearly the one who is moving them forward. Which means that the record of their travels is the record of their victories. This record of all their travels is the record of all their victories. And anybody who got in their way when it comes time to get moving was handily defeated. And so we read about two major victories. One was Sihon, king of the Amorites, at a town called Heshbon. And the other is Og. He's the king of also the Amorites, but in a place called Bashan. And, and we read about that at the end of chapter number 21. And these two victories are actually famous victories that are repeated and referred to over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So these victories that God was giving Israel, well, what did they, what did they propagate? Well, what they propagated was God's fame. They propagated God's fame. And by the way, that's what our progress in the Lord does also. It makes God famous among this entire world. You fast forward a little bit the story of Israel and, and, and there with Joshua having entered into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 9, we pick it up in verse number 6. And it says, they went to Joshua, they being, they're actually the Gibeonites, they're the people of the Hivites. And it says, and, um, they went into Joshua, into the camp of Gilgal, and said unto him, unto the men of Israel, we be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, we are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, who are ye? And from whence come ye? Now these guys are lying and making up a story, but... There's a reason why they're lying. They're scared, right? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, which were beyond Jordan, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, Og, the king of Bashan, which were at Ashtaroth. These are people that lived on the other side of Jordan. They had heard before the internet and cell phones the fame of the God of Israel, not just on the other side of the river of a battle they could have just heard about. They heard of the fame of the God of Israel all the way back from Egypt. And when God progresses his people forward and when God brings victory to your life, he gets famous. People get to know who he is. He gets famous because of the victories that Israel experienced. And anytime mere mortals, right, experience supernatural victories in our life, even lost people take notice. They might not say so, but even lost people take notice. And since in the Old Testament context, these victories were of a militaristic nature, well, it caused their reaction, and this is letter B, the nation's fear, so the progress and the victories gave God fame, but it brought fear to the nations. We go back to the book of Numbers, now in chapter number 22. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed 
because of the children of Israel. Well, this is the exact result that anybody, of the Israelites anyway, should have expected. Because God had prophesied long ago, well, 40 years ago, that exactly this would happen. Do you remember when they crossed the Red Sea? Back in Exodus chapter 15, then Moses and Miriam began to sing the song of victory of all the things God did in Egypt and bringing them through the plagues and, and killing the Egyptians and causing them to make it on the other side. Well, that song of Moses goes on to prophesy things that are going to yet happen, even where we find going on now in Numbers 22. Let me take you back to Exodus 15, 13. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold of the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, like Balak, trembling shall take hold upon them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By thy greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Passed over Jordan into the promised land. All because Israel, God's people, are making progress. That's why. Can we just stop here for a second and just ask ourselves the question, are we making progress with the Lord? Are, are we seeing new sights? Or are we living our Christian lives in such a way that we're just walking around like one of our feet is nailed to the floor. And every, every step we take, we're just going around a big circle. We're just going around a circle. We're just going around a circle. We're not going anywhere. God hasn't had any victory in my life in such a long time I can't even remember. But if we'll surrender to him, if we'll submit to him, if we'll follow his leading, if we move when he moves, well, we're going to see victory too. And we can get to the point where we don't have to go through the temptations and the trials in the wilderness anymore. We can actually get out of that thing. But the nations that are watching, well, they're getting nervous, and fear is a powerful emotion. And anytime we start making progress with the, with the Lord, well, then the world around us, they start to notice it, and sometimes it causes them to start to feel threatened, and they start to push back. And so that's what we're going to see in this story, and that's number two in your outline, the enemy's plan. And we're going to summarize for you the events of chapter 22, where we are introduced to a guy named Balak, who is actually the king of Moab. Balak is one of 18 different men who's a picture or a type of the Antichrist in the Bible. Balak worships the false god Baal. And he makes a plan against Israel by calling a prophet, a false prophet named Balaam. We see the three of these listed together at the very end of Numbers 22, in verse 41, where it says, And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that thence he might see the uttermost part of the people. Well, Baal and Balak and Balaam picture for you the unholy trinity of the devil and the beast and the false prophet. We see that in Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are the things that the devil's going to use to try and overthrow the economy of God during the tribulation in the last days. Of course, it's not, going to be, it's not going to work. They will be cast down, as we read in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. But Balak is the king of Moab, and Israel's winning their battles, and Israel's defeating everybody that's in their way, and he's nervous, and so he makes a plan, and his plan is to curse Israel. That's his plan. He's got to invoke the help of Balaam. Actually, he wants to invoke the help of his god, Baal, is what he really wants. He wants to engage in spiritual warfare. And this is the story of Balaam, and this covers chapters 22, 23, and 24. It's a long narrative of really just the story of Balak trying to get Balaam to curse Israel so that Moab can defeat Israel in battle. So if we go back to Numbers, we left off in verse number 3, so let's jump in in verse number 4 of chapter 22. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, now shall this company lick up all that are round about us as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak said, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people that come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them, that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Now we're going to get into the details of Balaam and his personal life and the details of the things that he did next week. Okay, bookmark that. But one thing I want you to understand is that Balaam is a prophet. He's not a Jew. He's actually not even a Moabite. But he's a prophet who is well-known for getting results. Because what we see is Balak calls for Balaam because he says, hey, we know you're the guy who can get it done. Whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. Now that's a perversion of Genesis chapter 12, but that's what he knew about him. So in order for us to understand this, we're going to have to dig a little deeper and we're going to have to understand a little better about this curse. So the curse needs to be understood a little bit better, and we're going to dig into that. Now, if you were just to define the word curse, you might come up with several different definitions. For example, uh, to subject to evil, to vex, to torment with great calamities. This is the idea behind curse them for me, vex them, torment them with great calamities so that we can win these battles. So the Bible, if anything, for sure is a historical book. It's historically accurate. It's not just a bunch of fables. It's not just a bunch of ethereal thoughts that people put together thinking about some, some greater force that's out there in the universe. No, it's literal history of actual people who actually lived. And historically, we have this story of what really happened. And we have several iterations. But first, I want us to notice Balak's first request. And I'm going to continue reading starting in verse number 7. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, have sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them, peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and 
said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak, and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And so the first request shows up, and like any good pagan king, he sends the rewards of divination. You could call that a bribe. Okay, I'm going to send you some. I'm going to send you some cash. I'm going to send you some stuff. I'm going to do something for you. You're going to do something for me. And so Balaam goes to prayer and finds out the answer is going to be no. And he comes back and he says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, that's not happening." So Balak is not really going to take no for an answer. I mean, he is the king of a people, and so he comes back with the second round of requesting, starting in verse 15. Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do Less or more. What an awesome response for now. (laughs) Please come back next week. It's not the whole story. Nevertheless, Balak ramps it up and he sends more important people. And he sends more rewards. And he offers them prestige. And he offers them promotion. And he offers them power. And he does it because he understands the principle that God tells us about in Proverbs 17.23. A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. That's wickedness. People do it all the time. Businesses do it all the time. Governments do it all the time. You may do it all the time. People constantly and forever need and want to get something done. Let's just grease the skids a little and see if we can't get this thing done. And the Bible says it's evil. And Balak is evil, and so that's the way he's going to go. And Balaam gives a great response for now. We'll see the rest of the story next time. But that's what's going on historically. And actually, continuing to read the story, you'll find that that's not even enough. Balak is going to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And you can read about that yourself. But I want us to move on and continue to understand this curse doctrinally. We need to understand it doctrinally. Because a curse is a serious thing in the Bible. In fact, the very first time a curse is ever mentioned, it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14 where God curses the serpent for introducing sin into the human race. And so the serpent is cursed, and as a result in Genesis 3, you know the story, the earth is cursed, and actually all of mankind is cursed as we've lost God's image and are spiritually separated from him. Such that you can fast forward to Matthew 25 and verse 41 where it says, And he shall say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, notice ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hebrews 6, 8 refers to it this way, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. The end of cursing is total destruction. The end of cursing is complete annihilation. That's what we're dealing with. That's how important of a thing this is. 
And all of mankind is cursed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But thank God, that's not for us. And why is that? That's because of Galatians 3.13. Because Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, y'all. Being made a curse for us, for as it is written, cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. We were cursed. Our race is cursed. And we are all on our way to a devil's hell because hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you. But you're on your way there as a cursed race. But Jesus Christ took your curse upon him. And you don't have to be cursed anymore. You can have that curse turned into a blessing. The blessing of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Practically speaking, we also have an enemy. A spiritual enemy, the devil. And he has servants. And his servants will oppose us. Simply because we are God's children. And we receive God's favor. And we make progress walking with the Lord, and we become dangerous to him and to his kingdom exploits. So Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, y'all, this is a good word. You have got to get this. We are not greater than our Lord. If they persecuted him, you think you're getting away without getting persecuted? That's not happening. Servant's not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they'll keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. So right before the crucifixion, Jesus Christ is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying unto his Father. In John 17, 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Lord, just deliver me from these problems. Jesus said, I'm not praying for that. I'm just going to pray that you keep them from evil. That they don't fall in the midst of them. They don't fall in the midst of them. Because we just need to continue to make progress. And even though there's an enemy that's going to try and mess up that plan and to try and stop you, we need to stick it out. His plan is to curse you. It's to stop you. It's to destroy you. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his job. But Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So don't be surprised when it comes. Don't fear. Don't panic. And let me just tell you, certainly don't quit. Don't stop. Because the story is not over, y'all. It's not over for Israel, and it's not over for you either. Because what you need to take away from the big picture of the story of Balaam well, that's our third point, and that's God's protection. That's God's protection. And I'm going to give you the highlights that come out of chapters 23 and 24, where Balak continues to be relentless in his quest to get a favorable answer from Baal through Balaam. But the more that he tries, 
And you can jump in in chapter 23 in the first four, five, six, seven verses. And he sets up these altars and he kills these bullocks and he sacrifices to try. Man, if I just sacrifice more, maybe I can get what I want. Isn't that how we think sometimes? If I just sacrifice more, maybe I can get what I want. The more he tries, the worse it gets for him. The worse it gets for him. Numbers 23 and verse number 8 says, the response that comes back to Balaam, How shall I curse, Balaam said, whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Y'all, we sit in a privileged position in the grace of our Lord. So I put that in your notes. How can anyone curse whom God hath already blessed? Y'all, you are blessed if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, then you are not. But you can take care of that today. You are blessed if you are in Christ. How can anyone curse whom the Lord hath already blessed? And woe unto that poor soul who's foolish enough to think that that's a good idea. The person who thinks, I'm going to curse God's people, has just made a bad plan. They've just chosen the wrong side of that argument. They're going to find themselves wishing they'd never done that one day. Let me just tell you. Y'all remember the story of Noah and the ark, right? Everybody knows the story of Noah and the ark. And after the story of the flood and the ark and the birds, and they come back and the ark finally sets on solid land and they finally all exit out of the ark. And and it says in Genesis chapter 9 that Noah planted a vineyard. Now, this obviously covers some time. He plants the vineyard. The grapes grow up. He made himself wine, and he got drunken in his tent. So, you know, great spiritual victory in the ark and the whole deal. And, you know, took a day off and really blew it. Okay, so we had a, Noah's having a bad day. And so he plants the vineyard. He gets drunk, and he's uncovered. He's naked in his tent. And the Bible goes on and tells the story that his youngest son, Ham, went in and it says that he saw the nakedness of his father. And that he came out and he told his two other brothers what he saw. And as a result of that, that was considered gross sin. And you could study that chapter more for the details of those things. But God jumps in as a result in the punishment of that event Ham goes in, sees the nakedness of his father, comes out and tells his brothers. In Genesis 9.25, it says this. And he, God, said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And if you're not paying attention, you might not notice. But the real question you ought to be asking is, Cursed be Canaan? What, what's Canaan got to do with this? Canaan's not the guy who did it. Ham is his father. Canaan is the son of Ham. Why is Canaan the one who's cursed? Why is Ham not the one who is cursed? Well, the answer to that is in Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 1, where it says, And God, notice, blessed Noah and his sons already, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Do you realize that even God can't curse whom he hath already blessed? 
Even God can't curse Ham after he has blessed Ham. And friends, that very reason is the doctrinal reason why you can't lose your salvation. You can't possibly lose your salvation. You've already been blessed with your salvation. And God can't possibly curse you and cast you into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You've already been blessed. Chapters 23 and 24 describe Balak's repeated attempts to get Balaam to curse Israel. And every time Balaam is asked to have God curse Israel, God returns another blessing and another blessing. And each time he returns another one, it's greater than the one before. He's like, you want to try again? Try again. I got a better one. You want to try again? Try again. I'll give you a bigger one. You want to try again? I got a bigger one. And we've got four more specific instances of God ramping up the blessings as the enemy tries to ramp up the cursing. They come in four categories. The first one, letter A, deals with Israel's choosing. Deals with Israel's choosing. And we're going to jump in in Numbers chapter 23. Again, they set up the altars. They tried to do this. Verse 8, how can I curse who God hasn't cursed? Verse number 9, Numbers 23, 9. For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and he shall not be reckoned among the nations. Don't take that little phrase too lightly. The idea that Israel is not to be reckoned or counted among the Gentile nations is is very important. It means that God has chosen Israel to be distinct and separate and special. They're not like all the others. They're called to be set apart from all of the others. Not just to a special role of service. That's important. But it ultimately means that Israel is going to be the nation that's going to rule over all the other nations of the world. So the politics of the United Nations General Assembly ought to think about that. But Balak, of course, doesn't particularly like that message. So he comes back to Balaam, and in verse 13, he's like, all right, hey, let's just back this thing up and try again. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how you got that, but let's keep trying. I mean, eventually, you know, maybe we'll get through on this thing. So then he comes back, and the second category, the first one is Israel's choosing. The second one's Israel's acceptance. We're going to jump ahead to verse number 19. Here's Balaam's answer. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In other words, what do you keep asking for? You think he's really going to change his mind? He's already told you what he's going to do, right? He says, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed. And I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He has, hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to the time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? Now, you read through that and you think, man, high fives to the Lord. How awesome is that? He's standing up for Israel. That's awesome. And then it is. But did you read what happened in the middle of that little passage there? It's actually in verse number 21. God has not beheld iniquity in Jacob? Really? 
<laughs> after all the stories we've seen, after all the things we've read about, with all of the plagues and all the poisonous snakes and all the killing off of Israel and the golden calf and all, all the ridiculous things that Israel's done, God has not beheld iniquity in Jacob? Really? Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel? Really? Well, either he's lying. Uh, no. Or God is merciful and has chosen to completely forgive. He has chosen to forgive. He has chosen to forget. And he sees them not that way anymore. Psalm 103, verse number 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. God hasn't beheld iniquity in Jacob because he chooses not to. God hasn't seen perverseness in Israel because he chooses not to. He dealt with it and he moved on. And so should we. No surprises. Balak's not really feeling all warm and fuzzy about this. He actually responds to Balaam at this time, and he basically just says, man, just shut up. I mean, I'd rather you just not say nothing than you keep opening your mouth and giving them even more blessings. I mean, really, just stop it. However, <laughs> he's like, but let's just try one more time. So, letter C, now we're going to ramp it up to Israel's inheritance. Israel's inheritance. This time, Balaam gets the answer, even greater blessings. And he's like, oh man, he wants me to shut up. I mean, what am I supposed to do? So God gives Balaam the word of even greater blessings. And Balaam's like, okay, I think I'm out. I'm just going to go home. And he, and he just starts to leave. And the Bible says the Spirit of God came on Balaam and he opened his mouth. He made Balaam say what he told him to say. It's pretty cool, actually. And what he says is found in Numbers 24, in verse number 5. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, as valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of lin, aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He has at as it were the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations his enemies and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee and cursed is he that curseth thee. Now we're getting back to Genesis 12. And what we're dealing with is the prophecy of the coming kingdom inheritance of Israel ruling over all the nations in the promised land, and everyone who dares oppose them is going to fall. Balak, he's just had it. He tells Balaam, man, Balaam, you have, I mean, you have blown it. You had opportunity for wealth and power and position and riches and anything you could have had at all, man. You have blown it. Balaam has not been allowed to receive those things, at least not as far as we've seen in this story so far. He tells Malam, just, just go home. 
you're useless. Just go home. But before Balaam leaves, he's like, you know, I, I kind of got one more for you. I'm not, I'm not quite done yet. And in 2414, it says that he's going to tell him what's going to happen. And the phrase you need to get is, in the latter days. And that's our fourth point, Israel's glory. One last prophecy of blessing, Numbers 24, 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a capital S star out of Jacob and a capital S scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel, Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. This is the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate glory of Israel in the millennial kingdom, ruling with Jesus Christ over all the nations of the earth. I'd say God stepped in to protect Israel, wouldn't you? I'd say that he turned that curse into a blessing, wouldn't you? But here's what you need to understand. Since Israel represents for us the life of any individual born-again Christian, Exodus chapter 4, the nation of Israel is called God's firstborn, his very son. You know what you are? You're God's son. You're God's child, born again of the Spirit. And the, and the life and the times of the nation of Israel as a whole picture the progress, the pilgrim's progress of your life as you walk with the Lord as well. And since these things are true of Israel, there has to be an application of these things being true of us also. So what do we know about God's blessing also for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you won't be surprised to see it has to do with the church's choosing. Because like Israel, we are also chosen of God. Now, we're not chosen of God unto salvation. We're chosen of God because we have chosen salvation. And as a result, we are not numbered among all the other peoples of this world, the lost peoples. And we are no longer considered Jews or Greeks or Gentiles because we are now new creatures in Jesus Christ. We are now sons of God. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. How? through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. God is not selecting you to salvation like the Calvinists think, but your sanctification and selection of God into the family is based on the fact that you have chosen Him. You have believed in Him. Through your belief in the truth and the sanctification of the Spirit that comes to dwell in you after, afterwards, well, you chose God, He chose you right back. And that's what He did for you. But it's, it doesn't stop there. It gets even better. Number two, the church's acceptance. Because just like Israel, we are also fully forgiven and justified before a holy God with his imputed righteousness so that when he looks at us, y'all, he doesn't see the wretched, vile, sinful piles of whatever you know us to be. He sees us as pure and holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for us. So in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, we can read to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Are you in the beloved? Because if you're in the beloved, Jesus Christ, you're accepted. 
In whom? In the beloved. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Romans 3.24 reads it like this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've been justified. You've been accepted fully and totally before him. And like Israel, we have an inheritance. Number three, the church's inheritance. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Titus 3, 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we have a spiritual inheritance guaranteed and waiting for us by virtue of the fact that we have been justified, by virtue of the fact that we have been chosen because we have believed. And the last thing, of course, is going to be the church's glory. Number four, like Israel, we have a glorious future promised us. Continuing Romans 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Amen. How's it going for you lately? Been having a tough time? You've been going through some sufferings? Been going through some trials? Been having a tough time? Do you know that however bad it is, and it may be terrible, however bad it is, the level of terror that you're going through today isn't even worthy to be compared to the level of glory that's coming your way, y'all. That's what he's saying. It's a promise. Talk about turning a curse into a blessing. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction. That's your life today. It's a light affliction, which is but for a moment. 70, 80, 90, 100 years, just a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And even if you do suffer, 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we suffer, well, we're going to reign with him. We're going to reign with him. A glorious inheritance. Listen, remember, the book of Numbers, the wanderings in the wilderness, learning to trust God every step of the way. Whatever's coming your way, it's coming your way with God's stamp of approval to allow it to happen in your life so that you can learn to trust Him through it. It's a necessary part of your growth and development as a believer. So can I encourage you today that if you will just hang in there long enough, you will make progress. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Don't quit. Hang in there. Sure, there's going to be tough times. But these tough times are common to all of us, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to all men, right? But God is faithful. Even if you're not, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. I can't bear it anymore. Well, I think God disagrees. Because if you couldn't bear it, God would have not allowed it. 
but because you are going through it, God has allowed it because he knows you can bear it. And he's faithful that if you'll just stick it out, he'll get you your way out. He'll get you your way out. Let him be the one to protect and deliver you. Don't get out ahead of him and make your own way. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. He's doing the calling. He should be doing the leading. He's the one that's going to see it through to the very end. He's promised all of it. And the picture and the story of Balak and Balaam doing their very best that they have available to try and curse Israel is the story of the Antichrist and the people that the devil will use to try and use false prophets and false teachers to mess you up and get you to get discouraged and quit and stop. But God says, I've got this. We're making it to the other side. I don't know if you noticed or not, but in this entire story that we've run through, Israel is not even, they're not even, a, they're not even a factor. They're not talking. They're just there. Balak and Balaam and God, they're all doing it. And Israel's just like, hey, stuff's happening. This is awesome. <laughs> That's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. Let God turn that curse into a blessing. And he can do it, but you've got to trust him. Let's pray together.